We're doing an, we're in an Advent series. The series is called Waiting for the Kingdom, which is really what Advent uh, is all about. It's waiting for the coming of the Lord, waiting for the kingdom that he's going to bring with him. In the Old Testament, they were waiting for the birth of the Messiah. And in the New Testament, we too, just like the people of Israel, are waiting for the return of the Son of God to put an end to this evil age and bring us into the forever realm of peace. Amen. Uh, and so today we're going to, first week we talked about kingdom lost, how we lost the, the kingdom in the Garden of Eden and, and what that meant for us, what that means in life. And then the next week we talked, the week after that we talked about kingdom promise, how God had promised the kingdom throughout the ages from, to Abraham, uh, to David, to the prophets after him, that one of the offspring, one of the offspring of Adam and Eve would come and save the world. Uh, and then today we're going to talk about kingdom invasion, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the birth of Christ. Usually you would preach this, this text on Christmas morning, but the way we're doing the series, we're going to do it now so that next week we can talk about kingdom one, about uh, Jesus' ascension to heaven and his reign forevermore, what it is that he accomplished in his birth and in his life and his death and his resurrection. And then the next week after that, we'll have a, a guest preacher. My good friend Joel Fitzpatrick will be preaching woo! to us. Woo! Can I get a woo? Can I be preaching uh, on kingdom come, on the, the coming of the Lord and the translation of our bodies into glory and beauty and light forevermore and, and the great hope that we hold. The great hope that we hold. So today we're going to be talking about uh, kingdom invasion and all this kingdom talk, really, I, it, it struck me today that much of the, um, the imagery of king is really just lost to us in, in Western democratic republics. We just don't really resonate with kings that's so foreign to us. But fortunately for us, my people, the Brits, they still know how to throw a good royal party. They still know how to, how to, they still know how to have a king and a queen and do royal stuff. And I was looking this week, preparing for this, I was watching, art, I was reading articles, watching videos about, uh, the, com- the birth of Prince George, who was the first child of uh, Prince William and Kate Middleton, who is the heir to the throne, right? And it was, it, I could not believe these, the interviews that I was hearing with people and the stories I was reading. It was utter pandemonium waiting for this baby to come, to be born. There was, there was I, I saw a, an interview with a reporter who was saying that it was the most, that her waiting out like in the cold, camping out for two or three days was the most blessed and privileged event of her life. And she told me, or she told this story about how the camera crews, uh, there was thousands of media trucks parked around the hospital, how the camera crews and the reporters were, had prearranged how that, how, to, how, to, how the reporters could duck at the right time so they could get a shot of the baby. There was memorabilia of every kind. You could buy Prince George toothpaste if you wanted to. Uh, it, just anything and everything, every, all headlines, all media news, all news stories, all sales, all everything, even not just in England but across the world was just focused on this baby being born. And when he finally was born, and they, they finally brought him out, it was just chaos. It was like the most amazing thing that anybody had ever seen, the birth of the heir to the throne of England. Someday will be the king of England. 
Angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said that Jesus was destined to be the eternal king of the universe. And this is the story of his birth. So let's read. If you please would stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Let's now listen intently together to the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. It is uh, full of glory and beauty and light this morning. Father, we pray that you would show us through it what you're really like uh, so that we might be more like you. Also, show us, Lord, what you have done what it has meant, what those angels meant uh, when they said that you have brought peace to us, Lord. Help us to know that Jesus is the King and help us to see him clearly in this text as we look at it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, C.S. Lewis, we'll start with a good C.S. Lewis quote today. C.S. Lewis was the chair of English literature at Uh, Cambridge University at the height of anti-biblical criticism and scholarship in the 20th century. And he said, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, he said this, besides being complicated, reality, in my experience, is usually odd. It's not neat, not obvious, not what you would expect. Reality, in fact, is usually something that you could not have guessed. And that is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It's a religion you could not have guessed if it just offered us the kind of universe that we had always expected, that I should feel that we were making it up. 
But in fact, it is not the sort of thing that anyone would have made up. It has just that sort of queer twist about it that real things have. It's a great quote to talk about the contrast and what we just saw in that story. If we were going to write a story about the birth of the king of the universe, it would have been nothing, nothing like that story. We would have loaded it up with all the things that we think are super important in life. We would have loaded it up with all the things that we congratulate each other and we all strive after. It would have been just full of everything that we think is important, everything the world celebrates. Jesus would have been born in Caesar's palace or one of the princes of Egypt or some other celebrated figure. Uh, He would have been Every media outlet in the ancient world would have been camped out for weeks waiting for his birth, waiting to announce it to the world. Uh, It would have been full of luxury, fame, power, ambition, reputation, uh, comfort, luxury, wealth, glory, everything, everything that we love about the earth. (laughs) But the birth of Jesus was nothing like that. It was nothing like that. And the the big reason is, is because what God thinks is important, (laughs) what God values is usually very different than what we think is important and what we value. And we can learn, we can learn something from that, learn something about who God is and also something about life. God did not come into the world, and that's what the Christian faith believes, that Jesus was the incarnation of the creator God, God did not come into the world to participate with us in our self-congratulating, back-slapping about how great we are and how great he might be uh, as, a, as, as another one of us, but instead, <laughs> he really came to save us from a lot of that nonsense. He came to save us um, from uh, the power of sin and death that has overtaken the world, the very things that cause us to reach for the trinkets of the world, to, to bring us comfort, to bring us temporary comfort. Uh, he came to save us from that. And it really is the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God is really as insubstantial and as weak as it sounds just reading the story. In reality, it is the invasion of the forces of light behind enemy territory. C.S. Lewis says this a couple of paragraphs down in the same book. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Isn't that great? Saying if you really want to fight the man, you need to be a Christian. And then when you go to church, he says, when you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret messages from our allies in the free world. C.S. Lewis came up in the 20th century for, has, uh, through the, the period of the First Second World War, really shaped his culture and his thinking, and he's giving us these rich imagery of, of enemy territory being behind enemy lines and receiving messages and really the story of Christianity being much like the story of D-Day where God has brought his forces in to overtake the forces of darkness and liberate us from them. And the best part is, here's the best part of this whole story. The best part is that God told us exactly what was going to go down 
And he did it a thousand years before it all happened so that we would know, so that we would be able to be sure that the peace that he is offering us is more real and more substantial than anything the world has to offer us, anything the world throws up in competition. And so the big idea of this passage, one thing the Holy Spirit wants us to get from this more than anything else is this, that God has come to bring us peace, just like the prophets said. God has come to bring us peace just like the prophets said. And let's look at that one part at a time. First, God has come. In a big way, this story is intentionally told to set up a contrast between the, the poverty of Jesus and his family with the power of, of, of Caesar Augustus. Think about it. This whole story is taking place because one guy at the seat of power has decided that he wants everybody to, to, to move and go back. Everybody, he wants to, everybody to travel at an inconvenient time so that they can pay more taxes and everybody bows to it. Think about that kind of power. The entire known world. One man makes the call and everybody jumps into submission and does it, no matter how hard, no matter what kind of hardship it might bring. That is earthly power. And that is contrasted intentionally for us with the story of Mary and Joseph. Really, uh, it starts with even the pregnancy of Mary. That word when it says that Mary was betrothed to Jesus, that's equivalent to really are engaged, right? And then it says, and she was great with child. It's still, even in our progressive culture, it's still not super cool to walk down the aisle on your wedding day nine months pregnant. Most people try to avoid that for one reason or another. Uh, but think about in the ancient world, the pregnancy of Mary, God <sighs> impregnating her with the Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit before she was even uh, married to Joseph was part of the suffering that Mary endured, the shame that she endured faithfully as her neighbors in Nazareth thought about her being unmarried and pregnant and that would never end through her whole life might be one of the reasons why Joseph took her with him. The journey itself was 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Think about that. Ladies, ladies here who have had children, I want you to imagine, uh, imagine that the IRS has issued a new decree that you have to file your taxes in person and they have made it a 20% increase and the closest IRS office is in Anaheim, and you have to walk, and you're in your third trimester of pregnancy. Can you imagine that? And then once you get there, it's your first kid. You're scared to death about how bad it's going to hurt. There's no epidural coming. You get to the IRS office, there's no one wants you to mess up their office, so you have to deliver in a public restroom. Nothing is clean. There's no privacy, and hundreds of people through paper-thin walls are listening to you scream. That's how the incarnate God chose to come into the world. We, my, my wife and I, we had our first child on Christmas Eve. 
our first child on Christmas Eve. And we, we were at, we were at uh, Zion, Kaiser Zion Hospital, which you could easily mistake for the Marriott if you weren't paying attention. And I'll tell you what, when, we, you know, when you're having your first kid and you're a pastor and a pastor's wife and it's on Christmas Eve and you're in that kind of luxury, you cannot help but be thinking about this story and the difference between what we were experiencing and what Mary and Joseph and Jesus were experiencing in that probably a cave or a stable or something like that out in the middle of nowhere. There's a song, there's a song by Andrew Peterson called Labor of Love that nails it. and says, It says, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. He had nobody but Joseph. And I guarantee you, he had no idea what he was doing. (laughs) Amen. nothing like we would expect at the birth of a king. Nothing like we would expect for the birth of the king. You know why that is? It's because God could care less about the things that we get so caught up in on the earth. Would you think about it like this? I want you to imagine, imagine a vertical scale from one to a million, okay? At the million mark is the heavenly glory. At the one is a cardboard shack in Calcutta, and then at about maybe 10 is the home of Mukesh Ambani, a 27-story, 400-square-foot skyscraper in Mumbai worth a billion dollars for him and his wife and his three children. Cardboard box, one 27-story skyscraper mansion, maybe a 10, heavenly realms of glory, a million. But God, first coming into the earth, he's just like not even tripping. Doesn't need all these things that we are so intent on fighting and scratching and selling each other out over to just get a little bit more of earthly comfort because what he had, what he knew, his reality was so far above that, it didn't matter. And what he chose instead to do was to come in a way that identified with us with everyone to let us know that the, from the moment he arrived was humiliation. Theologians talk about the humiliation of Christ didn't start when, when, when Pilate sent him to the whipping block. The humiliation of Jesus started really when he was conceived, certainly when he was born in those kind of circumstances and he did it on purpose. He chose that. That should tell us something. And to tell us something about when we think that we've been offended or that we haven't gotten the honor that we deserve or we are offended or we haven't gotten something we think we must have or we must need when we look at the way God has operated and calls us to imitate him in. We see that we are able to give all that up in order have the peace that he would offer us. And that's the, that's the reality. The reason, another reason why he did that is because what he came to offer wasn't more, wasn't more material wealth. He didn't come to get us from a two to a three. 
He didn't come to get us from a three to a five. Jesus came to give us the peace with God that opens the door to the heavenly realms of glory that gets us to a million. That was the goal. That's the second part. Second part is to bring us peace. God has come to bring us peace. Augustus in this story, Caesar Augustus, started life as Octavian, a military general. He and three other men, Mark Antony and another guy, brought peace back to Rome after the murder of Julius Caesar, and then Octavius ended up taking out the other two guys, and he began the official Roman Empire ruled by, by an emperor, and he took the name Augustus, which really means exalted one. And he created the Pax Romana, the peace, the Roman, the Roman peace uh, that lasted for almost 200 years. Uh, but Luke, again, he wants us to contrast. He wanted his original readers, and he wants us to contrast the peace that Octavian was able to bring with the peace that Jesus was offering us, a whole different level of peace. There was a, a philosopher contemporary with Luke, uh, Epictetus, Epic, Epictetus, and he said this, Epictetus, he said this. He said, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, envy. He cannot give a peace of heart, which man yearns for more than even the outward peace. The Octavian, he could offer an outward peace. He could offer a volatile peace from war, but he had to do it on the backs of other people. He had to do it through oppression. He had to do it through manipulation and political pressure. He had to do it through slavery throughout the empire. So the Pax Romana was great if you were born in Caesar's palace, but not so great if you had to file your taxes in Anaheim and you were poor. And so Luke wants us intentionally to contrast that kind of peace with the peace that these angels are announcing, that this king had not come to just treat the symptoms. He hadn't come to just bring a tentative peace that could break out in war at any moment. He had come to really treat the underlying disease, the underlying promise, or the underlying problem. He, was, he came to offer peace with God and all the benefits that came with it. And the angels announced Jesus with three titles. They announced him as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. And at least two of those titles were shared by the Caesar. Caesar was lauded as the Savior of the world. Caesar was lauded uh, as the Lord, who was the Savior of all mankind. And so Luke is on purpose using these political titles subversively in an act of sabotage to say that Octavian, he can do this much, but he cannot do what only God can do. And so he says that Jesus is Savior. Augustus could save us from outward war, but Jesus had come to save us from the cause of war and the cause of famine and the cause of racism and the cause of poverty and the cause of disease and depression and drug addiction and sex trafficking and bullying and every other awful thing about the world that we live in that we try to forget. He had come to bring the 
the absolute solution to all those problems. Not just to save us in a little way temporarily, but to bring absolute salvation by bringing us out of this world and renewing the entire world into what it was always meant to be. He did that. If you look at early Christian art, early Christian art oftentimes will have a picture of the cross coming out of the manger or they'll put together in in comparison the cross, the manger, the swaddling cloths and the burial cloths of Jesus to show that there was a connection. The reason for the incarnation was for him to come and suffer and die for us. That he was literally born to die. He was the good king who came, didn't come and ask all of his people to die for him, but he came and died for us. Christ is the title, a Jewish title, Messiah. It really means God's anointed one. In ancient Israel, the kings and priests were anointed for their roles. The king was to protect us, to conquer evil, to rescue us from enemies, to keep us safe. And the priest's role was to represent us before God and to pray, uh, to pray for us, to intercede for us before God. And Jesus has come to save us from sin and death and the devil, and he right now stands in heaven interceding for us, praying for us nonstop as our high priest. But it also meant the one who we're waiting for, the the ancient Israelites were waiting for the anointed one, the one that God had promised would come, and the angels are announcing, this is him. This, This is what you've always waited for. I know you might think it's this. You might think it's that new truck. You might think it's the job. You might think it's uh, getting to hang out with the cool kids. (laughs) But this is what you really are looking for. And the last one, the surprise, is that the angel calls him the Lord, which the surprise is that to accomplish all this, the angel is saying that this wasn't just another man, not a great teacher. It wasn't an incarnating angel. It was, it was God himself who had somehow miraculously, mysteriously incarnated into his own universe and into his own world, which is the radical difference between Christianity and just about every other world religion. In other world religions, God remains in heaven or in the other realm, and he sends us a list of things we must accomplish in order to make it to the next world. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of good luck with those lists, man. (laughs) The radical difference of Christianity is that God didn't just stay in the heavens and make demands on us. He incarnated and came and lived among us. uh, And he brought salvation to us. He fixed the big problem. Now, if it was a movie, this was a movie, It'd be the greatest love story that anybody ever told, the story of the good king who leaves his wealth and power and reputation in, in, in the highest places of the land and he comes and humbles himself and sacrifices everything to be with the people he loves and then he recreates the kingdom into a never-ending paradise by dying for the people he loves. You almost hear the echo of that in every great story that's ever told and there's, there's good reason for that. It's the greatest, most beautiful story anyone has ever told. And right there, sometimes critics will come and, like, come and, and, and hit you from the other side after they've critiqued the Bible. 
blah, 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 blah. You, you lay it out like that and they'll say, well, yeah, but it just sounds too good to be true. You know, I get it. It's a beautiful story, Rob. Wouldn't it be nice if it was true? Well, there's a lot of beautiful stories. There's a lot of beautiful stories that aren't true. The good news is that we can know that this one is true because uh, God told us exactly what he was going to do thousands of years before it happened. It's the last part. God has come to bring us peace just like the prophets promised. Here's the sticky part. The sticky part is that uh, the Old Testament, we have the Old Testament and it records for us how all of this was going to go down in, in, in incredible detail way before it happened. So if you're, if you're a skeptic here, I don't know if everybody in here tonight, if you're a skeptic, stick with me on this, okay? Uh, and for all of you who have been here with us through this Advent series, let me recap a little bit where we've been so far. So Genesis 3. God has created the world, mankind sins, they fall into the estate of sin and misery in the middle of God laying out curses to them. God comes to them and says that one of the seed of the woman, women don't have seed, right? Women have ovum. There's already a hint of virgin birth in that statement. But he says the offspring of the woman, one certain offspring would eventually come and crush the head of the serpent and he would be injured, bruise his heel in the process. At Genesis 12, God again comes to Abraham God promises that the same offspring would be one of his descendants and that he would be a blessing to all the nations. At Genesis 49, Jacob, again, prophesies that this offspring would not only be from, descended from Abraham, but he would specifically come through the line of Judah and that the scepter, meaning kingly rule, would not depart from Judah. The kings of Israel would all come from the line of Judah until he, the offspring, would come to whom, i.e. it, the eternal kingship belongs. That's a pretty bold claim to make a thousand years before it happened. And then Second Samuel 7, what we talked about last week, a thousand years later, God again comes to David and says that that same offspring would be one of his descendants. So you see, it's already starting to get pretty specific, starting to narrow down. Son of Adam, son of Abraham, son of Judah, son of David... 300 years later, Isaiah 53, what we read today for our gospel reading, uh, says that this offspring of David would be the savior of the world, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. This was written 300 years before crucifixion was even invented. And that God would lay upon him all of our sins, bringing us forgiveness and peace with God, which would open the doors for us to eternal life. Isaiah also said that this same offspring born unto us, same words that the angels use, would be the incarnate God. And at the end of his kingdom would have no, his kingdom would have no end. Uh, and then finally, for our purposes, not totally, there's hundreds of these kinds of prophecies throughout the Bible. Micah, the prophet, uh, 700 AD, said that this offspring, the descendant of David, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions would be born in the city of Bethlehem. 
I don't know, I don't, I don't bet a lot, you know, but I don't know, what are the odds of that, you know? That's just seven prophecies, right? There's several hundred just talking about Jesus. And then there's other lines of prophecy that we can build up upon that. Maybe you're saying, yeah, but they just made it all up, or they guessed. But the problem is it gets worse from there as you continue to study it and you continue to look at it. We have Old Testament we have hard copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the, the, the Old Testament translated into Greek. We have hard copies of all these prophecies that are in existence that we have copies of that date to at least 250 years before Jesus came. So I don't care what you think about the Old Testament. I don't care how you think the Old Testament came together. It doesn't matter. I'll grant you any kind of theory you want about how the Old Testament came together. The fact is that when it did, 250 years before Jesus, there was 100 detailed prophecies about exactly what he would do, where he'd be born, who he was, what he would do, how he would die, all kinds of details surrounding his life and his death. And the New Testament, some people say, well, they're ancient foolish sheep herders. How, you know, they're just making stuff up. But the reality is there was good historians back then, and they were uh, there were sensationalist historians back then, just like now. There's Time Magazine. There's The Inquirer. We have, uh, we have The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and we have The Occult Roots of Nazism. Both history. Some are good, some are bad. You know, liberal theologians like to say that the Gospels are bad history, but do you know who thinks they're great history? Roman historians think they're great history. Roman historians lean heavily on Luke and on Acts for their understanding and knowledge of the ancient Roman world. Guys like A.N. Sherman White, guys like Colin Hermer, who did a study of Luke and Acts and found that there was hundreds of facts that were embedded in the text that could not have been known by anybody other than an eyewitness. So if we want to be uh, consistent, we have to say, okay, then it's good history, but Maybe they were lying. Maybe there's an eyewitness who was just lying. But the problem with that is that they were all killed for their faith. All these, all these New Testament authors, all these witnesses to Jesus, all went to their deaths rather than recant, rather than confess that it was all made up. And the difference is, the difference between that and somebody who walks into Tel Aviv with a, and clicks off a vest in a crowded bus is that these guys were in the position to know for sure whether or not they were telling the truth. And every one of them died rather than recant. One of them, one of them at least, would have said, okay, 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 okay. (laughs) Don't put me in the boiling oil. I will tell you where we hid the body. Chuck Colson, who was from part of Watergate, said that Watergate proved to him Christianity was true because 12 of the smartest guys on the planet could not keep a secret for three weeks. So look, at the end of the day, what does that mean? Why did I go through all that? There's a lot more to it. That's a very cursory uh, description of it. But at the end of the day, what it means is this. That we have the prophecies in the Old Testament and we have reliable eyewitness testimony of their coming to be in the New Testament. And what that means is 
that the source of intelligence behind the Old Testament prophecies was able to have detailed knowledge outside of time and space and the material world. It was necessarily, by nature, supernatural. Whoever was behind those prophecies. And so really what it means is, there's really two options. Either, uh, if you really want to look at it, you know, there's, there's good scholarship, there's bad scholarship. There's good scholarship, or there's bad scholarship that just wants to prove what it already believes. And so it rules out all kinds of things to begin with, and and then good scholarship follows the information and f- comes to the conclusion based on the best evidence. And the best evidence we have says that either there is a supernatural malevolent deity who is lying to us throughout time, or it means the story is true. It means the story, the beautiful story of the good king who left everything behind and sacrificed himself to save a people and to bring them into the everlasting realms of paradise is actually a true story. And the only requirement to get in is to believe it's true. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to keep a list of rules. You don't have to check off any boxes. You just have to believe that it's true, that God has done what he said he's done. You don't have to believe it, but you can. And you can do so with the highest level of intellectual integrity. So we hope you do. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, oh, we thank you for telling us a beautiful story, and we thank you for giving us mountains of evidence to show us that it's true. We would have never been able to make this up. This is just not a story, Lord, that sounds like anything like anybody would make up. The heroes are all flawed and sinful. (laughs) Everybody's a hot mess, just like we are. We don't do anything to win anything, but you sacrifice yourself and bring salvation to us, and all that's required is that we humble ourselves uh, and gratefully accept that that you have offered. And so we pray, Lord, that all of us today would, would, will have done that. If anyone is here who has not, we pray that they would. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bring salvation across the face of the earth and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.